Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. This is Vikram from Quantlayer, and it's awesome to have you listening to our first podcast. Faison and I cover how we got into crypto, how crypto markets compare with traditional stock markets, fraud in the ICO space, cross-border capital formation, and more. This inaugural episode was a lot of fun to record, and I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. What's up, everyone? You got Quantlayer here. Vikram speaking. We also have Faison, the wizard. Hey, how's it going? We're with Quantlayer. We're a software consultancy based in downtown Brooklyn. We build software for clients. We build MVPs for startups. We build larger systems for enterprise clients. But yeah, that's basically what we do. Yeah. Another thing that we're working on is a, uh, a platform for alerting and aggregating news on uh, important events in the cryptocurrency space. Uh, we start out by focusing on traditional finance and then found that the data sources and what's happening in cryptocurrency is much more uh, interesting and there's a lot more opportunity to develop meaningful content. So we've uh, shifted focus to that. Yeah, the platform is basically, it's a, a cryptocurrency market intelligence platform. One of the big problems in crypto right now is that there aren't that many great research tools like there are in traditional stock markets. Stock markets, you have a ton of stuff like Bloomberg and street account and trade the news. And also the market isn't one-to-one. So with stocks, you have things like earnings calls, reg FD, SEC filings. In crypto, you really don't have any of that. So it takes a bit of effort to figure out what are the kinds of things that cryptocurrencies move on, you know, what fundamentals, what technicals and things like that. And so we keep track of these kind of interesting things just to give a few examples. So coins have dedicated chat rooms and they'll announce important events in those chat rooms, like what's going on with the roadmap, how's it changing, um, are they hitting their deadlines or missing them? And, you know, that's always very interesting stuff that people want to know about, that traders want to know about. Another example is we we keep track of source code. Um, there's always interesting source code changes associated with coins that are often market moving. So we all that stuff exists is just really hidden. So we deliver that stuff in a really nice, easy UX for our users. But yeah, that's basically the product. And then Vikram, since this is our first podcast, do you want to talk a little bit about your background and how you got into this? And then I'll talk about mine. Yeah, sure. So prior to starting Quantlayer, I worked in finance for a number of years. I was in investment banking at, at uh, UBS and Morgan Stanley and then worked for a couple hedge funds, one in San Francisco and then another in Boston. And we, I was a traditional hedge fund analyst. And then the 2008 crisis happened and we had to shift our business model to accommodate the market conditions. These markets were totally crazy. Stocks would trade in ways that you didn't think they would. Companies would miss earnings, stocks would trade up. Companies would destroy earnings and their stocks would trade down and they'd go bankrupt. It didn't make any sense. So I started trading options around that time. And then I think one of my friends had sent me a a link to a Slashdot article. I don't know the exact year, but it was around that time about Bitcoin. And it just seemed really interesting. I didn't really understand it that well. But there was a bunch of stuff going on during that time. We had Bitcoin, we had drones, we had uh, basically the media was picking up on a fundamental change in tech that was pretty interesting. So around that time, I said, you know, I volatility in the markets is kind of drying up. It's hard. It's hard to make a living doing this. So I got more interested in getting into tech. 
So we met in Boston and, but yeah, that's basically how we met. Yeah. How about yourself? Yeah. So my background is I was in school for something completely unrelated. And then a group of me and three other friends just decided that we wanted to start a company. And we went through the process of developing an idea. And it was essentially going to be like this food delivery service, like subscription based for university students that use like, you know, people that had part time jobs or were stay at home that would cook. And then for a number of reasons, we realized that was a bad idea and somehow ended up two of the four of us started working on a health tech startup. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was an interesting year. We had actually a decent idea, some interest from prospective clients, but neither of us were technical. And so it ended up being a huge mess in terms of actually being able to deliver yeah. in that what, process. What was the idea? The idea was, uh, so at this point, especially, there was a lot of a focus on uh, wellness in the workplace. And there was a lot of demand for digital solutions to help manage wellness or even increase participation in wellness. And so you can think of it as like a fantasy football league for your workplace, mm -hmm. except that you earn points by actually participating in wellness activities. Yep. But you could be doing jujitsu, I could be playing tennis, and we right. can still earn points. And the reason we thought it was interesting in the space is it has the right mix of like, it's people you know, not just strangers on the internet, but also there's a certain level of peer pressure that exists within like your coworkers that's not there with your friends. So like, yeah. if you join a team, you're probably more likely to do what you're supposed to and not let your coworkers down. Right. And the third piece of it was, uh, so my co-founder was working as an actuary and we looked at some of the numbers and just the amount of money companies were losing as a result of like wellness and insurance and health related uh, expenses was insane. So in the industry, there was just a ton of awareness of like, we need to and are willing to spend money to solve this. And so around that time, it was just the perfect storm of like, companies didn't have this stuff. They wanted this stuff. They were willing to pay. The solutions didn't yet exist. So we sort of came to the idea that way. But again, being non-technical and being essentially uh, college students with no money, yeah. weren't able to execute. But in the process, we realized like we wouldn't be able to validate or go to the market in three to six months. Instead, we wasted a year trying to find someone to build it for us for mm. equity and all that. Yeah. So in that process, just decided th uh, that I was going to learn to code yeah. so that the next time I had an idea, I could just go to the market with no capital and a lot less time investment. Yeah, that's awesome. And so in the process of learning to code is where, where we met. And then yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Like this whole idea that you want. I mean, I kind of went through something similar. It was just on my own. I didn't have like a group of people like that you worked with on. Just a language learning app. I was interested in. There's this whole Anki system of memorizing mm -hmm. words. Really like quickly. the flashcard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, open source flashcard yeah. app. So I wanted to build, I, I hired someone off of Upwork to build that for me in Django, you know, and, and it took, it took way too long. Same issue. I didn't know exactly what I was looking for and the product itself, it, it, it was good, but I had burnt up enough capital on it that I wasn't able to get it to market. And it was just, it wasn't the, yeah. it wasn't a full blown effort. Yeah. Just like a very strong piece of advice for like non-technical founders. You either need to find someone competent that to partner with that can build it for you. Or your core product needs to not be software, or you have to have enough capital to actually go get like a good team to like build it out. If you're going to contract out the work, trying to like, oh, for 10 grand, we'll get someone here and there to put it together. Yeah. That is not going to work if your core competence is software. Like that's just every single experience that we've come across. Yeah. Yeah. But that's my yeah. rant. That's, that's like one. Uh, no, we, we, we love your rants. So we'll, we'll hear more of them. But there, that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is, when, when management teams have way too much capital. Mm. We've seen millions burned on just garbage software because the project was run by procurement and business and not by someone that had a good good eye for 
like right. technical competence. Right. So there's a there's a sweet spot of of capital and MVP ishness of the product to actually get out. So that's always always kind of interesting. Yeah. So Vikram and I were both working at the same consultancy in Boston. Shout out to Greenfield. <laughs> and then uh, when they got acquired, uh, we decided it was a good time to do our own thing. We had been talking about a number of ideas for a while. Originally, it was all focused in traditional finance, like SEC filings, option prices, that sort of thing. And then we dabbled in some of that, but really decided the right thing to do was to start a consultancy so we could establish a good base of revenue on which we can then go out and work on product sort of more slowly and steadily rather than just try and like crank something out in three months and yeah. hope it works. Yeah. I think one thing we noticed too is some of the stuff in traditional finance is just super expensive for the data. Yeah. It's very prohibitive from two perspectives. Like a lot of the really valuable stuff like has already been built. It's a very mature and sophisticated industry when it comes to like use of technology. They're often the first to a lot of stuff, especially if you look at like what HFT firms and stuff do. Yeah. And then on the other side, the data is so expensive that you essentially need a large fundraise or some sort of a subsidized data like um, that you know some incubators provide to really have a shot at entering the yeah. market. It seemed like a lot of their pricing models, there was like a, a base fee, which is in the hundreds of thousand of dollars, and then a per user license fee um, for like stock data, for example. So that that's pretty much a non-starter for you know, anyone who's trying to bootstrap, first of all. Yeah. But while that was happening, we we sort of fleshed out a lot of the infrastructure for the system that could pull in information from news sources, pricing sources, do calculations on them, flag what's meaningful. And then around the same time, there was the you know resurgence. Bitcoin had been flat for a while, and there was just the resurgence in interest in not just Bitcoin, but broader cryptocurrencies, like the, the explosion of the altcoin market, the ICO market. And so what that did is, you know, with just Bitcoin, there's less value in a product like ours. But with the explosion of you know over a thousand, I think altcoins. Yeah, on we're CoinMarket. like sixteen hundred now in yeah. coin market cap, and so it, it essentially became an entire marketplace of of all these overvalued, undervalued, and very volatile and like. Yeah, rapidly changing uh, currencies. So we decided to focus on that. And what else is int- what? The other thing that's interesting about that space is rather than having the data flow coming from a couple of new agencies and exchanges, everything is sort of out there in the public domain for these blockchains. Yep. But not just that. The types of data that is useful has never really existed in in other financial markets. So it's yeah. just a brand new opportunity. Yeah. Data, like you said, data is all out there. It's transparent. Coins have their own blockchains. They're, and if they're, all the public coins have public blockchains, you can go and investigate. There's no great tools right now. There, there are some companies doing it, but there are no great tools right now to actually analyze those blockchains and see how capital is flowing in and flowing out. You know, a lot of these companies that I, uh, coins that ICO'd, you can actually see how much of their ICO funds they're spending. Yeah. So some of them are burning through it. Some are managing it well. Some are just holding it as ether and they're yeah. not doing any kind of treasury management. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's a really interesting space. There's a ton of stuff to learn about and alert on and understand better that I think that we can, our, our platform provides a ton of value about. Yeah. And then, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff that's interesting from a technical perspective about the crypto space, cryptocurrency space that is very well covered. And I think a lot of the traditional people in the crypto space are from the tech world and they very thoroughly understand or th- think they understand how the blockchains work, the cryptocurrency, the individual cryptocurrencies work and what their pros and cons are from a technical perspective. But I think what's lacking is having talked to you for a while, there's a ton of sort of knowledge that exists in the financial world 
about how these things actually behave in markets that is just most people are totally unaware of. And you're seeing a lot of patterns that have existed in other financial markets for, I would say, centuries yeah. <laughs> reappear, but also in new ways because it really is like more public than anything has ever been. And there's this extra technical component uh, right. to it. Right. So actually on that note, I was just listening to the uh, the Tesla conference call, their <laughs> Q1 uh, conference call, which turned out to be a bit of a shit show yeah. with uh, Elon Musk sort of just getting angry at being asked what seemed to be reasonable questions on financial targets and production targets. And then just, I think, spent the time talking to like a YouTuber about very lofty long-term ambitions. Yeah. But what that made me think of is in the financial space, communicating, pricing information, really anything that's like pertinent to a public company, it's a very regulated process. And there's a pretty like well-established standards in place for how you do that. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I go to look for information on crypto stuff, I'm looking on forums, I'm looking on Telegram, right. I'm like reading GitHub issues. It's yeah. just completely the Wild West. Yeah. And so to that effect, I guess, when you were trading, yeah. how would you go about and do your research on a company and, and find what were they were reporting? And what are they obligated to do in terms of reporting? So research process involved a lot of things. It was talking to a bunch of my other trader friends, trying to come up with good ideas, considering aspects of the economy that people weren't necessarily paying attention to. So the way I traded, I traded options around uh, important events. So if a company had a big legal battle coming up soon, I would see how the stock is priced and how the options are priced around that. So for example, there was a company called Rambus and they, what they were, they were a semiconductor company that had sued a bunch of uh, Korean semiconductor manufacturers like Hynix and Samsung. And their legal case was coming up in the fall. So sometime in March, I think I got a call from a friend of mine. He's like, hey, you should take a look at Rambus. It's, it's out. It's far enough out that people aren't paying attention to it right now. So the options are you know a little cheaper. So it's worth doing a lot of research into it and, and learning more. So with Rambus, I had access to court documents. Mm -hmm. So I could actually go to, I think the case was happening in San Francisco. I could call up the office in San Francisco, the law office, and say, hey, you know, where can I get a hold of this stuff? And they'd say, go to this, go to the website. Like with a telephone? Yeah, with a telephone. I don't yeah. think the... It, it, it was with a rotary phone, too. Oh, my God. I don't <laughs> think the blockchain community is going to be okay with that. That's what they need. They need more phone-based stuff. <laughs> and I, we had access to management. You know, if what we had... Uh, management come in and talk to us. So banks take around different management teams to to their uh, clients. And uh, Rambus came in and I got to meet them and understand, okay, so how much of an issue is this is this legal battle that you're coming up against? And they would tell me. And it wasn't anything proprietary. They would tell anyone that asked them. It was in their 10K, in any of their filings. So anybody who was interested in it knew about it, but the market broadly did not. So you mentioned this uh, 10K. Yeah. And I learned a little bit about that while working on some of the SEC stuff that we had uh, looked into. But what is a 10K? And a follow-up to that, what are companies obligated to report in, that are publicly traded? So I won't know all the answers to the what they're obligated to report, but I can talk very broadly about sure. what I would care about. So 10K is basically an annual report, annual filing that a public company has to file. Companies file quarterly filings, but those can often be pretty small. They can just say, okay, last quarter, this X, Y, and Z happened to us. This is how much money we made, so how much we lost. With the 10K, they're obligated to report a bunch more. Uh, maybe they're not obligated to, but they, they do end up reporting a lot more because I've seen really small 10Ks. But the vast majority of like IBM, Microsoft, any big company will report 
uh, risk factors, for example, all the things that they're worrying about and all the things their lawyers are telling them to worry about, basically, are in one document. And it's great uh, because you can actually just read through those and they're they're just telling you all the things that could happen to them. So often you can come up with a pretty strong thesis just by reading a 10K. You read through the risk factors. Can can you give me an example of what a good one was that you came across uh, recently? um, Or not recently, just... So a while back, uh, there was a public company called Medallion Finance Corp. Um, Their ticker was Taxi. Ah. And what they did, they financed taxi medallions. Mm -hmm. That was their business. And one year, for years, they said that ride sharing like Uber and Lyft is not going to affect their business at all. And then one year, it just showed up in their 10K. One line. It just said... We, it, it was a risk factor. We might see pressure from these ride-sharing companies. And do you remember what happened to medallion prices around this time? Yeah, uh, I don't know the exact time frame, exact percentage, but it got it got crushed. You know, it was probably down sixty percent, eighty percent over a pretty a relative short amount of time. The reason being is because they finance all these medallions. When the medallions go down in value, they, they get crushed. Right. So medallions at all-time highs in the millions of dollars in New York, and now you know, I just I had an Uber driver the other day was a retired. Uh, a uh, taxi driver who told me a story that he bought a, a medallion back in the 90s for 100 grand and then just sold sold it a few years ago for 1.9 million because wow. he thought he, they were going up every week they're 40 50,000 dollars a week and he thought this is unsustainable so he sold it and now he was saying that he has friends who are trying to sell theirs and even though the city made 400,000 450,000 the official uh, amount to buy a medallion they can't sell them for 100 grand even wow yeah so that kind of stuff happens in markets and companies tend to be aware of this stuff but they just don't where you would find out about it would be in the 10k risk factors. okay that's like an example yeah so i guess why that is interesting to me is there's nothing really like that in the crypto space yeah so you know there was one ico that i was interested in for a company that would provide some you know information on upcoming icos and and price movements and what i found was you know, they have this great white paper, this great landing page. They publish a roadmap. And then, you know, they have a certain release date. And what's interesting with these ICO companies is a lot of their GitHubs are public. So you can, and with, you know, their Ethereum wallets are public. So you can see how much money they raised, how much the founders have withdrawn, where they're spending their money, how much work they're doing. Yeah. And it really looked like they weren't doing any work for <laughs> months leading up to the, uh, yeah. to the, release and that turned out to be correct right. the, the release was uh was garbage yeah and the you know the founders had taken i don't remember the exact number let's say three quarters of a million dollars out or equivalent a piece uh if not more yeah it was something like two-thirds of all the capital they raised right went to the either the founders or some kind then or a handful right. went like, up too yeah and so that like that's one thing like you know software it's complicated. Deadlines are not always met. Yeah. That's understandable. But what was really surprising about this whole process was leading up to it, they just kept saying like, this is, you know, look at the roadmap. That's what's going to be in the beta. This is when the beta is going to be. And they missed their deadline. The stuff they said wasn't going to be in there. And then subsequently, um, it's been a lot of the same. Like, it looks like not much is being done. Yeah. And what is alarming about this is this is something that you know, I think at the at the Ethereum price at the time, well over ten million dollars uh, was raised in this ICO. I think they got a nice office in Hong Kong. They hired some people. 
but no work is being done. Yeah. Uh, nothing meaningful is being communicated to their uh, investors. They're just giving canned answers yeah. in Telegram. Right. So, you know, with a public company, this would never fly. So, first of all, they've fly. taken public funds. Like, it's right. not even like they've raised from accredited investors. Right. So, you know, like your grandma or whoever has right. put money into this. And there's no, um, not regulation, but there's no standards that are being followed on yeah. just basic communication to investors. Right. And so, I guess my question to you is, what should the crypto... Like if you have an ICO and you want to be a good actor and obviously there's no regulation, no one knows what that looks like yet and you don't want to be a scam ICO, uh, which there are a lot of, yeah. um, but there's definitely a lot of good actors out there that are have uh, raising for legitimate reasons. What are some of the steps that you would take to communicate meaningfully with your investors given that you understand both the ICO side and you've been an investor so you know what you'd want to see? So on the public market side, they have they have rules they have to follow. They have uh, Reg FD, which is a regulation fair disclosure, where they basically have to tell if they tell one investor one thing, they have to tell all the investors that thing too. At the same time, it just it needs to go out. Like I'll give you I'll give you an example. So I was at a dinner. It was a conference. Um, it was a dinner, and the C, uh, CEO of a company was there. He got a little drunk, and he. He said something about how uh, things are just going so well, like everybody's going to be really happy. The next day, the company put out a press release with like a pre-announce, basically, because the IR person happened to be, investor relations person happened to be right. at the table, too. And so they, he, they had to put out a press release saying that was a pre-announce because this guy got drunk. Huh. So they, so they Because he told you he, they had to basically let everyone know right. that level of information. Yeah. I mean, I heard a story from an old boss back in the pre-Reg FD days. Where he was at a conference at Cisco, and John Cha- and uh, John Chambers was giving, he was a former CEO sure. of Cisco. Yeah. He he said that uh, they were going to miss their quarter, and everybody else was just sitting around. And my old boss was like, "Wait, what? And that had Did not you been just say you're going to miss your quarter? Yeah, it hadn't been announced anything. So he got up, went outside, found a rotary phone, called his boss, and said, "Hey, we have to put a short position on because this guy just said they're going to miss their quarter." That's not the reason why Reg FD happened, but that kind of stuff happened so regularly. And then you had the the dot com craze of the nineties, where information was just like whoever you know knew, they would give you the information. And so that's why Reg FD happened. I don't know what you can do to enforce that, enforce the spirit of Reg FD and crypto. Right. Because you don't have registration with the SEC or any right. of like central authority by definition. Right. Yeah. I mean it's worldwide too. Right. Even if they all followed U.S. SEC laws. I mean, whatever the SEC, U.S. SEC says, um, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, my understanding is whatever the U.S. says, U.S. SEC says, a lot of countries end up following that. But you can just tell from the chat rooms, they're they're obviously giving information that affects the coin's price. Right. Right. So, you know, one cool thing about our platform is that we track a lot of that stuff. Right. And if you, you know, you can go search for whatever coin you care about, see, uh, see what they're, what's going on in their chat room real time. And uh, I think that's helpful because it just it helps spread information out. Otherwise, what are you going to do? Subscribe to like all these chats and then check each one. I mean, you, right. you can do that, but it's just tough to uh, keep track of. Yeah. And I, I think we're also we're seeing like, you know, there's the ICOs that are running and doing everything right. But beyond that, we're seeing sort of three groups. One is the <coughs> well-intentioned, but essentially ignorant where you have a group of developers, they're very familiar with the technology, but they have not worked in finance. They're unfamiliar with Reg FD and all these 
good practices for disclosure. And so a lot of stuff is being ignored just by lack of lack of knowledge. Then I think you have the second group that when they're put under pressure, like the the company I had mentioned earlier, like when investors start saying what's going on, rather than just being truthful, they resort to just information hiding and things that are that are less than less than savory. Yeah. And then the third is there's just a lot of uh, outright scams going on. We see this coming up in our platform because we, as you mentioned, we are actually listening to a lot of the conversation that's happening. And a, a big thing, a big risk in crypto markets because you have so many different currencies, but for a lot of them, the volumes are relatively low. Some of them are relatively small is the risk of market manipulation by a small, like a small group of actors. Can you talk about some of the different types of scams or market manipulation that you're seeing? Yeah, again, a lot of those things have legal definitions, but things that look like those things, right. there's very obvious pump and dump groups, right? Yes, day before and then yesterday, I think it was yesterday, Substratum, their Twitter account got hacked and they tweeted out, hey, we are proud to announce we're going to be the first token on uh, on Coinbase, ERC-20 token on Coinbase. And that's meaningful because whatever gets listed on Coinbase is going to go up. I mean, that's the prevailing wisdom. Right. Right. And it's probably reasonable. There's a lot of demand for crypto for Americans and Americans have very limited opportunities to buy alts very easily with fiat. If they get listed on Coinbase, it's probably going to go up. So there's always rumors flying around who's going to get added to Coinbase. So someone's hacked a cryptocurrency's Twitter account. You know, there's some irony there, but they they were hacked and they announced that they were going to get added. So it pumped. And then I think the 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 community called it out. And then, of course, got destroyed right it was trading lower than where it happened before too so people are doing things like that there's just lying going on in these chats you know people are just saying all kinds of stuff there's also i don't know if it's lying by omission but it's something like you have a lot of uh chat admins not knowing about the projects really like they're not the founders of the project like they're just pr people right. essentially right and in stocks i mean you have it's not like the ceo is going to be in a chat room talking with everyone right, right? Like but IR they have person a, they hire an ir person to do that but the ir person typically has a good idea of what's going on with the company too they might not know quarter by quarter how many uh, you know what the eps is going to be but you know they have an idea of what's going on so that you see a bit of that uh but yeah i think the pump and dump and the i think you alluded to it earlier as far as these coins that are doing just unsavory stuff, raising money, sending it away, and just not producing anything. Or, you know, you see one or two commits per, like, week. Something yeah, like that. if that. If that, yeah. Um, I don't know, what do you think? Like, what to you is, is like, what are some major problematic parts of this space? Uh, so, one of the big ones is just how much of the money that's coming first is very unsophisticated retail investors. Yeah. You know, this isn't like with an IPO where the people that have access to the IPO are generally accredited investors, sophisticated enough that you expect that they can take care of their money. And if not, they can afford to lose it. Right. Just following these chats, and especially some of these ones where, especially after the, you know, the market cooled down after uh, Q4 last year, you're just seeing people that put all of their money into crypto or alts, especially, and are getting wiped out. And then the sort of questions they're asking are it makes it very clear that they have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. You know, someone putting tens of thousands of dollars into something before the release of a product and then after it's out they're asking like when are you going to get listed on exchange right. so this can bounce. It's, right. as opposed to investing on any right. like fundamental valuation of the product. Yeah. And so 
a big problem is really that all these like risks that we see are exacerbated by the fact that the people that are getting caught up in it are very unsophisticated retail investors. Mm -hmm. And so like a lot of these scams are not that sophisticated, like not that clever, Yeah, but still catching a lot of people. Right. And I guess you have the worldwide aspect of it too. Right. So before you're maybe limited to like penny stocks and there's just a handful of people with like brokerage accounts in the U.S. Right. This is like, this is totally different. Yeah. I was uh, actually, I was reading an article today that was comparing, uh, you know, Jordan Belfort from Wolf of Wall Street and that whole like penny stock era to a lot of the bad actors in the crypto space. Mm. You were trading, were you trading in during the penny stock era or was that a little uh, bit more? No, the first time I got interested with stock, with the stock market was uh, with a friend of mine in early high school. Okay. And we bought a few penny stocks. Paul Kim, he's a Florida uh, Florida lawyer now. Okay. Um, he, uh, we went to the library and got Wall Street journals and just went through all the stocks in the Wall Street Journal and the ones that were like less than 10 cents. So we just look at them and we'd take note of what company they were, maybe read a little better mm. and then buy some of that company. It's actually the 10 cent point is interesting because that's another thing we're seeing is an issue with a lot of retail investors is they don't realize that you can buy a fraction of something. Yeah. And so where the Bitcoin price was, I think it's just shy of $10,000 now, but at yeah. one point it was at 17, 18 yeah. and people were not buying Bitcoin <laughs> or Ethereum or some of these coins because the per unit price was very high. Right. And so they were gravitating towards a lot more of these very volatile or just fraudulent. Yeah. Um, tokens or currencies. And uh, I guess with penny stocks, maybe some of the appeal was the same. Yeah, the appeal with penny stocks was like, oh, I can buy this thing for three pennies and it's going to go to a dollar. I can make 30x, right? You see that with crypto too. So yeah, it, it is similar with that respect. And I think like a it points to a broader problem of just how there's a, a very strong analogy between stocks and cryptos. If you own a stock, you own a share of a company, right? You own one share. Right. So you have rights to that. So company gets sold, you get paid, etc. With crypto, with non-secure, I mean, there's no, like we don't, and people are talking about security tokens or whatever, but they're just utility tokens right now. You don't own anything. You it's literally just own, a speculative play. Yeah, it's like owning a, a license, right? Like an API key or owning a software license. It's like, let me prepay for Microsoft, you know, 2024 office. And I'm going to speculate on whether it's going to go up. Yeah, and that, then potentially not even use it, but just hope that I can resell it. Right. And I don't know, what do you think that like financially, does that make sense? Typically things go down in price over time. And I mean, is there some kind of analogy as far as utility tokens go where it does make sense? Yeah. So for me, there's, there's, it's like two levels. One is just the valuation that these companies are raising money at doesn't seem to be even like an order or two orders of magnitude away from like any sort of reasonable fundamental like value for a company. At, for, I mean, a lot of these companies are just a white paper. Right. But even if you give them a ton of credit for having a great team and definitely they'll do everything they said and it'll go great. The valuations are still yeah. like off by a, at least an order of magnitude. <laughs> and then you add to the fact that, as you mentioned, the thing that you're putting money into is not even a share for this overvalued company. Right. It's just a token to, you could say, like be able to use the product. But the reality is it's just a token that you want to hopefully be able to uh, flip for more. Right. And in my mind, it's really just a matter of time before it's like, who's going to be left holding the bag. Yeah. Cause that company will ultimately like when it's a white paper, you can say all kinds of stuff, but after they're a year or two old, either they have to deliver on their product and then they have to show what sort of earnings they have. Yeah. And then 
there's going to be a problem. Right. Or what we're actually saying is they don't deliver on their product and then there's a problem. Right. So the scenario of they deliver on the product and they have the sort of earnings to justify their valuation, you then have the problem of, okay, you have this token, but it's not a share in the company. <clears throat> right. How is that going to play out? Right. So like, except for the handful of very legitimate utility tokens, it's, it just, a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. There's also the issue, like say, say a, a coins team got bought, like say you're under an LLC and you've issued coins. So the coins are part of the LLC. Right. And then the, and then the, that little unit gets right. bought. Like right. Google comes in and buys this company, right? This coin unit, whatever. Right. So does that render those coins useless and worthless? Like what if they just buy them to put them out of business? Right. And they're under no obligation to, right. you know. Like those are not shares, so right, you're, not, you're not a shareholder. You don't own anything, yeah. Yeah, and so that it doesn't make yeah. that much sense. I don't know. I feel like we've been ragging a bunch on cryptos right now. It's a really interesting it's space. It's a very interesting space. Yeah. Like, I think in, like, consumer credit, insurance, there's a lot of these spaces where there's a huge amount of overhead that the middleman, like, creates. Like, they take a large tax, and they also add a lot of overhead to the process. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, I pay a lot for car insurance, so I don't feel like they yeah. do a very good job. I think like they're inefficient in general. And yeah. I think there's a lot of room to add efficiency to to a lot of these markets. And I am confident that we will see products that do that. Yeah. It's just that right now, I think there's just a certain amount, of, like a certain volume of capital that retail investors are able to put into crypto. And that amount of capital is just coming in irrespective of like what it can be allocated right. to. Right. Right. In terms of like quality or underlying value. Yeah. I guess one scenario I see play out is the, you know, these security tokens that people are talking about do become a thing because it's very powerful. Like one of the most powerful applications of crypto is just capital formation. Like I can just put up an address and say, uh, you know, send me money and I will do these things. If you can do that in a, in a trustworthy manner um, and receive capital from all around the world. Right. That's pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Yeah. So I think we'll see that space will get more interesting. And, you know, if you're if you're a person in, in India and you want to raise capital to help your farm do X, you promise like a payout of 10 percent. Right. Like you can you can do that kind of stuff. Right. And with yeah, especially taking out transaction costs and overhead, you can right. do it. at Like I think right now, if you want to go to an investment bank and have them do an IPO for you, you probably need to be worth at least. Yeah, a lot. 50, 100 million dollars, maybe probably. more to, for it to make sense for, for most the banks. banks. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, the, the situation you gave is really if you had a small farm, in right. theory, um, once the system's mature enough, you could have a small small security token right. that's based on some yeah. underlying value. And then also capital formation in the uh, in the, in the the charity space. Right. So uh, it does make it pretty easy for anyone to spend send even a small amount um, to some kind of charity. So if you have, instead of having a thousand rich donors, you have millions of uh of smaller donors that's pretty meaningful to you now right um what about another space i'm thinking of millions of small donors what about like political contributions yeah that's a good uh idea as well um i know you i've heard more and more about about people running for office at this next election they're going to be taking crypto hmm. like i think someone in california I don't, I don't remember exactly but there are at least two stories i've heard so far there's also this. Uh, there's also a representative, I think, Brad Sherman in California. He, the crypto community, is a little upset at him because he was one of the detractors during uh, the last meeting with the 
with the Coinbase lawyers, right? The, that's right? Senate, or Congress, right? Or, I think he called. He said all ICOs are scams, right? Bitcoin is a fraud or something like that. Right. So all these people are trying to start a petition to get someone to just take crypto and uh, a, a political candidate to take crypto oh, and dude. run against him. Yeah. So <laughs> that's pretty interesting. But yeah, that's a good. That's a good point too. But it's like, what are the applications outside of finance? Um, it's not that they won't come, but it's just not clear. Yeah. Well, I think one of the values for, uh, you know, the, the thing that blockchain does well is it takes the ability to create a ledger and takes the trust from some central authority that's maintaining the ledger to everyone. So I think in like low trust or high corruption scenarios, there's definitely value in in representing ownership or currency or any sort of transaction where maybe there is no trustable third party. Or you know countries with currencies that are failing, right? Or fraud and that sort of thing, right? So I think yeah, I think I think the reason so much money has flowed in is because people are optimistic because there are a lot of very interesting applications. I just think that a lot of the specific things that money is flowing into are not the yeah. solution. Yeah, that's, um, that's totally fair. I think an analogy you see thrown around is like the original web boom, where right. a lot of capital came into tech startups because there was all this like this is what they'll be able to do and the reality was that the infrastructure just wasn't there for those products to be able to be built out in a cost effective way back then but then as you got you know i think i mean just looking at our platform we were able to you know start it now doing everything on the cloud yeah two of us writing the code with some help from some other people right and it's running on multiple servers and doing all kinds of stuff I think if we had wanted to start this in 2001, we would probably have to spend tens of thousands of dollars buying right, servers, somewhere to put them, mm-hmm. someone to. So, I think you're seeing a similar. You'll probably see a similar sort of thing where, like, the capabilities will advance to the point where a lot of these things can be done and be effective. Yeah, um, it's just a matter of when that is. Right. What do you think about the uh, technical skill quality? Like when you think cryptocurrency, you kind of think, okay, these guys better know, better know their stuff, right? And you, you have people with like probably not a ton of experience, you know, saying they're the lead dev of this ICO. And yeah. That's, that's, that's another weird one to me. It's like, there's so many ICOs that, that have 10, 15% dev teams. Like they can't all be. Yeah. Amazing. So what, I mean, what you want to see happen is like the underlying protocols, all, all like the important infrastructure level stuff to get written by the people that are good and standardized sort of like for you know the web you don't start by writing a tcp ip right or something like that when you want to start up a web app um so hopefully we'll see the sort of infrastructure for a lot of this stuff and the ways to interact with it like the ui from a technical perspective mature to the point where your we'll say average developer can come in and be productive Mm -hmm. and do a good job Mm -hmm. which you see in like the web space with a lot of the tools that are out there and then the second piece is really just from a user perspective, the UX is, needs a lot of improvement. Mm-hmm. Like we're both developers. Yep. We understand technology somewhat well. And going in and sort of getting a handle on how all this works and how you should buy crypto and secure crypto and you know interact with uh, Ethereum applications, there's a bit of a learning curve. Yeah. And it's not practical yet for me to get like my dad doing that. Yeah. Even just buying and safely storing crypto, right? There's a little bit of a learning curve, right? And so I think that has to improve a lot. Yep. On that note, actually, I'm just going to ask you the handful of questions I always get asked, which is, should I be buying crypto? Yeah. 
how do I buy crypto? Yep. And then, like, you know, how do I store it? Or yeah, what's the deal with these ICOs? Um, I mean, coming from the world of options trading, I always thought about anything, any trade or any investment in terms of risk reward and expected value of the return. Hmm. Risk reward is expected value is a calculate. You can actually calculate it. Risk reward, you just have to be honest about. Like, it's very easy to say, oh, I want to invest this thing because the risk reward, it's going to go up 100 or I'll lose one. And then that's it. Like, that's your analysis. Like, you can't necessarily do it that way. But you start off with, I'll just give Bitcoin as an example when it was $2. If I, I don't, the market cap at $2 probably would have been, you know, 20 million. Mm-hmm. If you think it'll go to a billion, that risk reward is pretty significant, like 50, right? And you know what the downside is, whatever whatever you put into it. The higher Bitcoin climbs, I mean, unless you're a total maximalist and think it goes to a million dollars a coin, mm-hmm. which is a thousand X from here, sorry, a hundred X from here, it's a hundred to one. But the, the closer Bitcoin gets to what its final value around will be, the lower the risk reward. So uh, I do think it's worth thinking about getting into crypto, I think, uh, you know, I don't want to say like you should buy it because it, it's it's just up to every, it's different for everyone. For everyone should look at it and think of it in terms of how much can I put in that I could lose? Mm-hmm. If I lose all of it, is it a big deal for my life? Mm-hmm. If I just put in a little bit, but I can think it could go up, you know, 10, 100 from here, and that's a pretty solid investment. I mean, 1x is an amazing investment. If you're talking about 10, that's just phenomenal, right? Mm-hmm. In, any, in any other world. But in crypto, you have stuff moving like yeah. five, 10 times a day. So you just have to think about it in those terms. It's how much are you willing to put in and lose? It's just a really interesting space to do more research in too. Because so, so there's Bitcoin, there's also Ethereum, there's a handful of ICOs that are decent that might have a better risk reward profile than Bitcoin. So it's worth looking at those. Yeah. I don't know. Does that answer some of that question? Yeah. And then my other one was really just about how do you buy and how do you store? Yeah. Because uh, I think it's a lo- very unclear to a lot of people. I have friends that the only way they know how to participate is actually like, I think their brokers have access to a handful of ICOs. Mm-hmm. So that's getting money. But I think those valuations are terrible because mm-hmm. it's easy for capital to find those. Right. Um, or they know of like Coinbase and that's, that's essentially it. Right. So mostly like if you want to buy Bitcoin, depending where you are, you know, if you're in the U S you have a handful of options, Coinbase, Gemini, um, I'm, I know I'm missing one or two more. Sure. And if you're, there's also local Bitcoins, which is kind of a, Person, uh, P2P, like you, you go meet a person, give them cash, they'll give you Bitcoin. And then if you want to start buying alts, uh, you need to open an account with some other exchange. Like in the US, there's Bittrex. In Hong Kong, there's Binance. Those are pretty, two pretty big exchanges. It's a whole bunch now. There's literally sure. hundreds of exchanges. And I guess if you have a specific coin you're interested in, you can just go on CoinMarketCap. Yeah. And it'll list what exchanges right. it's traded on. Right, right, right. Exactly. Bitcoin Talk is a good source of info about what exchanges coins are on. Coin market cap isn't always um, up to date, so if there's something you really want to buy, you can't find in Coin Market Cap. Maybe go to Bitcoin Talk, do a little research, mm-hmm. see what, see where they're available, and then you, you, wherever you've bought Bitcoin or Ethereum or Litecoin or wherever, you send it to the exchange, trade it for whatever trading pair Coin XYZ is in, sure, and then you buy it from there. And then storing, you know, ERC twenty. I think hard wallet, hardware wallets are pretty solid. Paper wallets are pretty solid. Um, probably don't have enough, uh, a ton of time to get into. Like, no, and I think that, and that's a pretty well-trodden. Yeah. Well yeah. Although there, there are some concerns around hardware wallets. Okay. Um, so, for example, someone ordered a hardware wallet, a ledger, yeah. that had the seed 
preceded. Basically, there someone had written in a seed, yeah, and then shrink wrapped the package and then sent it to them. And so they just assumed that was their seed. They used it, and then the moment they did that, all their funds were stolen. Wow! This happened once in December. It was big on Reddit. I think it happened uh, last week too. So are there there are some concerns around hardware wallets, paper wallets? The obvious concern is like you lose it if it's not laminated or something, it'll decay. So uh, wherever you keep it, you also don't necessarily want to keep it on an exchange because there's you have, you know big, unsecured, unregulated banks basically. Yeah, exactly, and. One of the worst things that happened during the Mt. Gox scandal is so many people had Bitcoin, you know, valued in the dollars per coin, and they just lost all of it because uh, the, the exchange went down. Right. So a big like tenet of cryptocurrency is that you want to limit third parties. Right. And exchanges are just are these third parties that can't be trusted. Right. Um, we see that all the time with this kind of stuff like Equifax hack. Twitter today just said that they had stored or, oh, yeah. or yeah, what so happened exactly? They are. So basically what happens with a site that's correctly supposed to store your passwords is when you enter in your password, that password gets uh, hashed, which is like this long alphanumeric uh, string that can't easily be turned back into your password. And they only store the hash and they basically compare the hash of what you typed in to the hash they have stored. So they don't store your password. Mm -hmm. But what happens along the way is whenever you make a request to a site, um, they tend to log the details of that request for a number of reasons. If something goes wrong, they can find out to measure various things. It's just essentially a log of activity. But in these logs, they filter out any sensitive data. So they'll never save like a password or credit card number. They screwed that up. So <laughs> what, essentially what was happening is the filtration of the password didn't happen. And so they have passwords hitting their logs, yeah, which is a big problem right. in plain text. Right. And they didn't say how long it's been going on. That's the one thing I'm very curious about. Right. But I'm sure over the next few days it'll it'll play out. Yeah. But I think definitely security is a big aspect of what makes the UX right now difficult for your like average user. Right. Right. Or for anyone. Yeah. So that whole trusted third party thing is is uh, you know concerning, worth watching, and a big yeah big tenet of crypto. So yeah. To avoid these type of uh, situations. Yeah. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you're an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at QuantLayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at QuantLayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at QuantLayer.com. I will write back. Thanks.